0: We'll do a little bit of a review just to get started. Uh, We'll look at verses 15 and 16, and then we'll jump right into our study. But Revelation chapter 19, look with me there at verse 15. We'll pick it up there and we'll read into chapter 20, verse 10. To chapter 20, verse 10. We we definitely won't really expound much of verses 4 through 10 in chapter 20, but... um, I do want you to hear it and, and get your mind wrapped around what's coming next week as we study that more intently next week. But Revelation 19, verse 15: And from his mouth, that's Christ, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God. The Almighty. And he has on his garment, on his thigh, a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of strong men. And the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. Then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war with him who sits on the horse and with his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who did the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sits on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having a key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were finished. After these things, he must be released for a short time verse number 4 of revelation 9, uh, revelation 20 then i saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them and i saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the witness of jesus and because of the word of god and who also had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads and on their hand on their hand and they came to life and reigned with christ 1,000 years. <laughs> well, that, okay. All right. Right on. I think it's the wind. It's probably the wind. It'll probably happen again, I think. We just lost power there a little bit. Um, so where were we? Verse 5. Pick it right back up. Verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the 1,000 years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part. In the first resurrection over these, the second death has no authority, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released from from his prison. Verse number eight, and will come out to deceive the nations which are in, in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down, pardon me, fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Um, These are. Powerful and important words found here in the book of Revelation as the uh, time of church history and the time of the tribulation period comes to a climactic end. All of human history finds its pinnacle here in Revelation 19 as Christ returns. And uh, at our onset, I would have to say that there's one area of theology that engenders uh, more strife and debate and discord among brothers and sisters in Christ uh, than any other and that would be the area of eschatology uh, or the doctrine of last things. eschatology is is, a, is another name or word for the doctrine or the study of last things and And you would think that whenever it comes to the return of Christ that that subject would unite brothers and sisters in Christ that they would find themselves to be fighting for unity and be patient with one another, but instead opinions rage hot. Uh, there are no shortage of opinions regarding. Prophetic verses in scripture. And uh, what should humble us before God? Uh, what should humble us and drive us to seek his face, seek his leading? Instead, it actually is allowed to separate. And it's allowed to uh, even separate the best of friends. And uh, I believe that the single greatest contribute contributing factor to this ancient family feud of eschatology is um, is the fact that one's entire system of interpretation comes under question. One's hermeneutic is called into question. Uh, and it, when it comes to future events revealed in Scripture, we think that, you know, in other words, I would say it this way, that so much of the Bible contributes to our understanding of what is yet to come as far as prophetic revelation in the Bible. Uh, all of the Old Testament and the New Testament is pointing to what is yet future and whenever you call someone's eschatology into question you are essentially challenging their entire Christian system of interpretation so things can become right. come on now <laughs> why oh cool things can become can't kick the wall next time Yeah. <laughs> what was that time remember whenever we were uh, that happened one other time I was preaching over here and I was talking about I mean I was we were talking about the power of God and then all of a sudden all the lights went out. It was really cool. Or one time I was preaching up there on a Sunday morning and it was getting really bad. You remember this and the front two doors blew open? <laughs> Again, all this rain and wind came bursting down through the center of the sanctuary. It was a lot of fun. Aaron <clears> Luther <throat> Moody Church was speaking one time and he was um, boom right there that went. Says, oh yeah that <laughs> <laughs> well how about John MacArthur was preaching one time and an earthquake uh, went off and um, I think they were preaching on uh, somewhere in the book of Revelation about earthquakes and a, an earthquake happened and he's like well how about that for an illustration <laughs> anyway whenever you essentially bring someone's eschatology or point of view as regard regarding future events. Whenever you bring that into question, you're essentially um, challenging their entire interpretive system, their entire method of in- hermeneutic. And I think, as I was contemplating this today, as we were considering probably the most climactic event in uh, eschatological uh, revelation, as far as the scriptures are conter- concerned, I think what we need to keep in mind is that we should do so, we should approach these things with great humility. And, and I've said everything leading up to this point right now, is to, to approach with great humility, great grace, much patience, and a sincere heart, ultimately, to know Christ. I think, I think that's what we lose sight of whenever it comes to, um, to eschatology. We lose sight of the fact that this has been put here by God that we would come to know him more and that we would grow in in the knowledge of Christ but instead I think I see a lot of this growing and swelling today as we see a a younger generation of people more committed to reformed eschatology or reformed theology they 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 enjoy diving deeply into doctrine they enjoy the truth of scripture going very deep and it It does puff up. It has a tendency to puff up. And it usually puffs up at its highest in eschatology. And usually brothers and sisters are locking horns over eschatological issues to the point of even um, yelling at each other. And I think what we do is we lose sight that this is here, that we would be humbled, and that we would come to know Christ more. So as we investigate these verses, I want us to be committed to humility, humility, and to, to the desire to know Christ more. So let's look at it this from, from this standpoint. I, I've heard it this way. A lot of people will say, well, what's the book of Revelation about? If you could summarize the book of Revelation, what does it mean for the Christian? And I've heard countless times. I've heard, I've heard seasoned saints and young believers, they'll say, we win. Have You ever heard that? We win. I, I would agree with that. There is a sense in which we win. But really, the fact is, he wins. It's it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we learn here about Christ from what we've just read? Well, as by way of review, he is Lord. He is Lord. You abandon the Lordship of Christ and you are immediately on shaky ground. Christ is Lord. He is the incarnate word in verse number 13 look there he is the word of god he is king of kings and lord of lords verse 11 says that he is faithful and true he's actually the one that is in control of this very weather that is surrounding the sto- the, the church right now he not one drop of these raindrops that we hear hitting the windows not one drop falls falls without his permission and direction he is he is supreme Christ's supremacy is all over these two chapters. He is He is supreme Lord of all. He is true. He is faithful. He is judged. He is referred to in verse 15 as almighty, and he is coming again, quite obviously. So there, we learn that immediately, that this text is not about us. This text is about Christ. It is all about him. Even the return of Christ, it's not about us. It's about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and his his supremacy and that he will, he will bring all of his enemies under his subjection and under his rule and under his feet. He will make his enemies his footstool. Here's another thing that we learn from chapters eight, 19 and 20. Yes, Christ returns. Yes, Christ is supreme. But scripture is consistent. I love this. I can't tell you. I wish that, that I had the time tonight to take you through all the beautiful cross-references that are found just in Revelation 19 alone. It's, it's phenomenal, but we can't do that. There's countless references to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It's everywhere. It's all throughout these two chapters. Old Testament prophecy was fulfilled literally and in Christ's first advent, and a good rule of interpretation would be to expect literal fulfillment in his second advent as well. It's a consistency that we seek to desire, uh, that we seek to hold on to. Another thing that we learn here, and this third point I want to bring out to you, that we, this is still by way of review, that Christ's return will be marked by an all-out slaughter. It will be marked by an all-out slaughter. We're not talking about the great white throne judgment. That's yet to come in Revelation chapter 20, but this will be an all-out bloodbath as He presses in verse 15. He treads the wine press of the wrath of the rage of God, the Almighty. Literally, as you pour the grapes into the vat of the the wine press, those ripened grapes, when the person is pressing out the grapes with their feet, they are popping those grapes. And this is referring to the, the final judgment that Christ will render when he literally pops his enemies like grapes in a wine press. And it will be the fulfillment of his just wrath it's literally as the lsb translates the wrath of the rage of god and this leads us to our and you see, you ask the question well how is that fair is if is god is loving and just and holy how is it fair that he would pour out such rage upon his enemies well in this time in which we live the grace of god has is, is being poured out on both the just and the unjust. There is common grace that is going to our neighbors who do not believe in God. They are allowed to function in their day-to-day life. They live next to Christians. They don't live next to crazy people that are you know, shooting at them and different things. But God's common grace pours out even on the wicked, even now, he gives them jobs and money and finances and he fulfills their needs. It's God's common grace, but they are sinning against a holy and just, a perfectly holy God that in order for him to be just he must punish sin he must punish sin if he does not punish sin he is not holy he is not just and and this is why we rejoice in christ because it is christ who took our punishment for sin on our behalf this is why we rejoice because dear ones look we we did nothing to earn it or secure our salvation uh We are completely unable, completely incapable of coming to Christ. God must act first. He is the initiator. We love him because he first loved us. And this brings us to the cross references that I would like to take you to tonight. In verse number 15, the return of Christ is the testimony, is in testimony with Old Testament scripture. John quotes from Isaiah chapter 11, verse number 4. So look there with me at Isaiah chapter 11. I realize that we're a small group here tonight. I'm not going to give you the full dosage of this study that I have prepared for you, but I, I, I so wish that we could. I, when I think about this, I, um, I'm kind of sad because it might be a long time until I actually preach on this again. And I wish that I could take you to all the many beautiful details of these two chapters, but suffice it to look at Isaiah chapter 11, which is the direct reference that John is making here. And he says, look with me at verse one, then the, then a shoot, or that's talking about the branch or like an offshoot of a, of a tree or an olive branch or the shoot, the, the, the shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Well, who was Jesse? Anybody have an answer who Jesse was? Who is Jesse? David's father. Jesse is David's father. Ultimately, Christ is the son of David, son of God. He is in David's line, the tribe of Judah. So whenever we read about the shoot that will spring from the stem of Jesse, this is referring to the offspring of Jesse, not only David, but ultimately pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh. And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh, and he will not judge by what he sees, but by what his eyes see, nor render a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with uprightness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. That's the reference that John makes in Revelation 19 verse 15. And he will put the wicked to death. Why? Because what has just been previously mentioned, he is righteous. He has all knowledge, all counsel, all wisdom, all understanding, all might. His eyes don't miss a thing. His ears don't miss a thing. He is perfectly just to judge. In uprightness, he will decide with uprightness for the afflicted of the earth. This is our King Jesus. This is what is what John is referring to, pointing back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, Also, verse five, righteousness will be the belt of his loins and faithfulness, the belt of his waist. Now, now pay very close attention to this. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a young boy will lead them and the cow and the bear will graze there. Their young will lie down together and the lion will, will eat straw like an ox Like the ox and the nursing baby will play by the hole of a cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den and they will do no evil nor act corruptly in the in the in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh and the waters cover the sea. Then it will be in that day that the nations will seek the root of Jesse It's still referring to the same thing. It's still referring to Christ through those verses. He's coming in judgment in verses four through nine. And then there's something that will be restored. There's an amazing ecological transformation that has yet to take place that is referred to in six through nine. That there's going to be something that is that is unlike anything we've ever seen. I've you know, cobras I see those the, the the cobra snake on television, and it still gives me the heebie jeebies. It's on the TV, it's through the screen, and there's these guys, they're like three feet away from the, this giant king cobra, and they're playing these little fiddle flute things, and the, the cobra's dancing around. I'm just waiting for it to tag that guy, and he's done. We don't play with cobras, some people do, but, but it's, it's insane. None of this has happened. This is, this is something that Isaiah is referring to that is associated with the second coming and the judgment that is brought therein by the Lord Jesus Christ, this shoot of Jesse. Notice that the nations will seek the root of Jesse, who will stand as a standard for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. This is, this is a, something like we've never seen in the world yet to this point. Then it will be in that day, that, verse 11, that the Lord will again acquire the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain. He's talking about those who have been dispersed. He's going to re- reference Israel in these next coming verses from As- Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Ethiopia, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the scattered of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And he goes on to talk about Ephraim and Judah and and how he's going to regather his people back to himself in that time. But this is all referring to the second coming of Christ. When he's coming in in wrath and vengeance, he's pressing out the winepress of his wrath. John is pointing back to Isaiah chapter 11. Now you're still in Isaiah. Go to Isaiah 63 verse 3. John sandwiches these two verses, these two references, into Revelation 19, 15. Look at Isaiah 63, verse 3. I have trodden the wine trough alone. I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me, as I also trod them in my anger, and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my clothes. See, See, if we disconnect this supreme righteous outpouring of God's wrath at the second coming of Christ, if we disconnect that from who he is revealed as in the Gospels, we miss the person and work of Christ in his entirety. If we, if we focus on all the what we call the pleasant attributes of God and we focus on those niceties that we see in Christ at his first advent, and when we eliminate his just wrath towards sin, we indeed create for ourselves a Christ that is not the Christ of Scripture. We have, there's there's great problems in doing that. When you encounter individuals in evangelism today, you'll see that somebody will guarantee they'll come up to you and they'll say, you know, my God wouldn't do that, or my God wouldn't act that way. And we have to be bold enough to say your God is not the God of the Bible. Your God is a figment of your own imagination, of your own likeness. It's something that you want. If, if your God is all love and no punishment for sin, that's not the God of the Bible. Um, we, we need to be truthful with people who are caught up in their own self-centered, prideful, hubris ways of thinking and address those, those issues head-on. Um, that's why we, we, we've been called to love them, and we do so out of love. This is the climactic day of the Lord. I'm heading back to Revelation chapter 19. Look at verse number 17. We, we studied uh, last week, we studied that and he that was on the garment, verse 16, he has on a garment on his thigh, name, a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is absolutely supreme. And he must reign supreme in our lives as well, uh, just a quick note on that. I told you I wouldn't elaborate on this very much further, but we also live in a time where individuals would like to deny the lordship of Christ, where somehow you can I just read a story here recently that somebody somebody professed christ they made a they made a pray to prayer and um and then they turned their back on Christianity and they, they, they denied the faith, they denied Christ, and, and someone, a professor, actually had the audacity to say, no, I believe that person is sincerely saved even though they profess to be an agnostic or an atheist today. I think that has so permeated the church that it is a cancer that is, um, it, it is, it is uh, terminal it's a terminal it's a terminal cancer whenever we whenever we tell somebody that they can actually pray a prayer or do something decisional regeneration walk an aisle whatever it may be and we say oh no you know we, i know this guy lived like the devil and uh he's he he made a prayer at, at a church camp one day and uh but no i know he's in heaven now because you know he made that prayer i know he lived in sin and and uh denied christ at the end of his life but i'm sure that he's He's in heaven. No, that's a lie. That's a denial of the lordship of Christ. When someone is converted, genuinely converted, when they have been transformed by the Spirit of God, they will be a new creature. They they will be new. They're going to still battle with sin, but there will be a change visible. There will be a change. There will be a... One of the, def- the defining characteristics of a truly, a truly converted person is that they have a hatred towards sin. And they have a love for Christ. Um, you'll, you'll meet Christians that battle with sin all of their lives. And, and they'll battle with, we'll battle with sin until we die. But there's a love for Christ and a hatred for sin. Whenever you find someone that says, yeah, well, I'm not really too into that repentance stuff, you're probably dealing with a false convert. You're probably dealing with somebody that has not truly been born again. Um, to deny the lordship of Christ is a very dangerous and deadly thing to do. Uh, verse 17, now we get to our text. Then I, say, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven. So that, that reference there to midheaven is talking about the birds that are flying in the sky. These aren't angelic birds. These aren't this. This is actually birds that are being commanded by the angel. Essentially, this angel is calling the shots. He is he is declaring the victory of the battle of Armageddon before it even takes place. This angel says, "Come and assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of strong men." This is going to be a, a an all-out wipeout bloodbath. This is the Battle of Armageddon. It's referred to in Ezekiel 39. You can check that out some other time. Uh, verses 17 through 20. This is that final great battle that will take place where Christ will ultimately wipe out uh, the opposition, the armies of the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies. They will be totally annihilated. Look at verse number 19. Then I saw the beast. That's referring to the Antichrist. We have no reason to s- suggest otherwise. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war with him who sits on the horse and with his army. Notice this. So you can picture this battle that has been set in uh, ultimately by God. In the Old Testament, it refers to God is the one that sets this battle uh, before Christ. They set the the beast and his kings and the kings of the earth and their armies. They set the battle in array against Christ and literally in the next verse, it's all over. It's done. Between verses 19 and 18, the battle of Armageddon takes place and God doesn't even, Christ doesn't even have to lift a finger. He he, only so much as to speak and the victory is his. He wipes out the opposition. There is a something like we've never seen and never will see anything like it, Christ is going to just annihilate his enemies and he doesn't even have to lift a finger. He just speaks. And verse 20, and the beast was seized. So between verses 19 and 20, there's a catastrophic wrecking of these oppositions and the beast is seized and with him the false prophet who did the signs in the in his presence by which he deceived those. Notice there... He did signs and wonders. There were signs and wonders that are being done by false teachers. It's very dangerous whenever we think that the the modern day charismata that we see so prevalently in Pentecostal churches is automatically supposed to be accepted as uh, right or even true whenever forces of darkness can duplicate the same thing. It's very important that we're discerning about these, these matters. Because satanic opposition has power to do signs and wonders as well. There's the false prophet, the beast. They will do these signs and wonders in his presence, verse 20, but which by which he deceived. How will they use these signs and wonders to deceive? It's deceptive. It's to gain a following. To deceive those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two, that's the beast and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Ultimately, hell will also be thrown into the lake of fire. This is a reference to eternal punishment that the beast and the false prophet will sustain for all of eternity. How do we know that? Because in Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil who deceived them was also thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. That's after the thousand years, whatever length of time you interpret that to be we'll investigate that in a minute Um, any questions up until this point as we conclude chapter 19 notice verse 21 and the rest of the the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sits on the horse so christ just speaks and armageddon is over it's done the battle is over uh, there's nothing that will stand against our king. There's absolutely no opposition that will not be overthrown. And all the birds were filled with their flesh, just as the angel had announced from heaven, the angel that burns with the brightness of the sun. I <clears throat> it's just mind-boggling, to foolish to try to fight God. I even Satan would know better than he could try. I think it's just ultimately pride. They just have this blind pride, like they're gonna get it. You know, I just don't understand it. Um, It's a hatred for righteousness. It's an elevated hubris. It's an ultimate given over to pride. Yeah, it's amazing, Michael. I mean, it's it makes you wonder. It shows how sin does to your thinking. Sure does. (laughs) I mean, think about how blind and and obstinate we were before the grace of God came shining into our lives we were literally I was I was just running my face against the 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 wall of God's holiness I I just kept doing my own thing in blind pride I was completely given over I couldn't save myself if I wanted to and uh, he graciously opened my eyes and I think that's what you're, you're referring to is the blindness of the wicked is is literally reprobate it's like a, um, it's like a reserved for punishment mindset. It's completely obstinate. This leads us to our finally, finally, our second heading. Our second heading is that the judgment of Christ is final, and is it is authoritative. It is final and authoritative. This is the final judgment of Christ. It is final and authoritative. Amelia, you're doing great. Thank you. Good job. Pretty picture. Good job. This is the. Uh, The final rendering of Christ's judgment, and after this, everything has changed. Notice in verse number 20, verse number 1 of chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, there's a. Pardon me, there's a, a fourfold list of the names of the devil here, the names of Satan. He's known as the dragon. He is that serpent of old. That's pointing the whole way back to the book of Genesis. And it's also a reference to Genesis 3.15, the, the proto-evangelium where, where Christ is said to be the seed of the woman that will crush or bruise, uh, the, crush the head of the serpent and the serpent's head will bruise his heel. Um, he is that serpent of old. Who is the devil and Satan? He is that fallen angel. Um, we could go into a whole series of studies ab- about um, who Satan is and how he opposes God at all costs, all the references of the, of the scriptures referring to Satan, but we, we won't do that. We, we're well acquainted with who this is referring to here in verse 2 because it summarizes all that he is. He is, he is darkness, he is the father of lies, he's the dragon, the serpent. And he is the devil. He is Satan. And this is the final victory over the devil. Now, now check this out. Um, I was speaking with a dear friend of mine here recently. I think I have referenced, I, I, I spoke to you about this before. And he came up to me on a street corner one day and he said, he said, I believe that Satan and his demons are bound right now. And I thought to myself, I'm like, that doesn't really make much sense. Do I believe that Christ is defeat that that uh, Satan has been defeated by the um, death and resurrection of Christ? Absolutely. I think he's a defeated foe. I think he's done. He's he's uh, he's reserved for eternal punishment. But to to think that he is bound at the present moment, I think that's greatly misled and inconsistent. And here's why. I want to give you two reasons why I think that's that's problematic. One, it doesn't work chronologically in what we've just read. Um, and what I mean by that is that this, the second coming of Christ, which we interpret to be literally Christ is going to return again, then the binding for a thousand years takes place uh, in verse number two of Revelation chapter 20. Um, but the, for the most part, there's verses in the New Testament that also refute that. For instance, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse number 8 and 9, 1 Peter chapter 5, if Satan is bound at present, that he is a defeated foe and that he's bound presently, why would Peter tell us in verse number 8, in 1 Peter chapter 5, be sober, be vigilant, or be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour seeking to devour if he's bound how is he referenced here as lurking and seeking someone to devour well again i think that this is just inconsistent to think that he has been bound in some capacity that is outside of having any influence in the world around us i think that's just an inconsistent again in ephesians chapter 6 whenever paul talks about uh, putting on the whole armor of god we are to put on the whole armor of god in ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 after paul commands us to as believers to be strong in the lord and in the might of his strength Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Is is Satan a defeated foe at present? Absolutely he is. He is defeated. He's been defeated by the cross of Christ and by his resurrection. He is a defeated foe. But to think or equate that he is bound in the sense of unable or inability to touch um, the present time, I think it is an inconsistent hermeneutic and it brings damage to the testimony of scripture this leads us to well then what does this 1,000 years mean some would say that the 1,000 years is symbolic that somehow this is not a literal 1,000 years Um, notice verse 3 of of, uh, revelation 20 verse 3 and he threw him into the abyss And shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were finished. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Look at Revelation chapter 20 at the end of verse 4. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, and the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were finished. This is the resurrection, this is the first resurrection. Verse six, blessed and holy is the one who has has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no authority, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Again in verse seven, and when the thousand years were finished, Satan will be released out of his prison. There's six different times in Revelation chapter twenty is a, a thousand years referenced. And as I mentioned at the onset tonight, brothers and sisters in Christ usually go toe-to-toe regarding this section of Scripture right here. Usually there is most conflict uh, pertaining to these verses and what this 1,000 years actually means. Well, I want to investigate in our time that we have remaining, just a couple minutes now, essentially the three major views of the millennium or the three major views of these 1,000 years, this 1,000 years that's referred to in Revelation chapter 20. The first that I would like to address is something that is surprisingly on the rise. I'm really surprised that it's on the rise. It's called post-millennialism, post-millennialism. Post-millennialists, and I'm going to try to give this the fairest treatment that I know how, uh, because I told you in the beginning that I think that we need to approach with humility. We need to approach with the desire to grow closer to Christ. The first view that we're going to look at here is the post-millennialist view. They believe, post-millennialists believe, that the 1,000 years is only symbolic. It is given... This 1,000 years is a symbolic time referring to this age of righteousness that we presently reside in. It's often called a golden age of righteousness or spiritual prosperity. Do I think that there's going to be people saved in the present time in which we live? Yeah, that's why I preach the gospel. However, the post will refer... This is often referred to as a positive or a positivist or an optimistic view of the millennium. The idea is that the age in which we live in now is the kingdom age. It is the kingdom age. And this age will be, as the postmillennialists will advocate for, that this age will be ultimately finalized when the church has evangelized the entire world with the gospel, ushering in what is commonly known as a theonomy meaning one massive global Christian population. Christ's reign on earth is figurative in the sense that it is in the hearts of men. That's the view of a postmillennialist. millennialist that, that there's figurative reference to Christ reigning presently now in the hearts of believers and that this 1000 years that we've just seen in Revelation chapter 20 is not literal, it is symbolic, and that ultimately there will be this this theonomy that is ushered in by believers. I want to give you three problems or three inconsistencies as to why I do not feel that the scriptures teach postmillennialism. Here's the first. Postmillennialism teaches a heavy emphasis on works or activity in the sense of that the church has to build the church. Christ says that I will build my church and that he will keep the gates of hell from prevailing against it. The reason that I put this as number one problem is because if I thought that the building of the church had anything to do with me, I would not be able to sleep at night. I would would be a basket case. If I did not think that Christ was the one who builds his church. The second problem is this postmillennialism believes that things are going to ultimately get better and better and better and better, that things are going in an, in an uphill fashion to this climactic, wonderful moment. Do you have any references that you use for that? Uh, no. <laughs> Do I have any references for yeah. this? When you're stating references that showed where the why, what systems things are going to get better. Oh yeah. no, no, no! Actually, I'm honestly basing. I have some post-millennialist friends, so the information I'm giving you is literally information that came straight from them. Um, I think it's, you know. I see the you crystals know, getting worse. Obviously. Yeah, I. That's, that's what I see too. Anything ever getting better? Well, that's what I see too. But we'll we'll address that more here in a moment. Hopefully, we got we got 12 minutes, so I think we're going to make it. I don't see anywhere in scripture where things are getting better and better and better and better. Of course, with the church, I believe that Christ is going to build his church. And for us as believers, it's wonderful. This is awesome. I mean, you praise the Lord and we look to the future hope of Christ and we, we rejoice in that. But, but to think, first of all, you know, I don't interpret scripture by looking at what's in the newspaper. But when I have seeing homosexuals parading in the streets and dancing around, I don't see that as getting better and better. I see that as more and more sin being opened and opened and opened. Um, so no, I don't see anywhere in scripture where it goes gets better and better and better. I don't see that testimony in the Old Testament and I don't see that testimony testament in the in the New Testament anywhere. Thirdly, why do I think that postmillennialism is inconsistent? Because I think it's founded on an inconsistent hermeneutic. I think it's an inconsistent method of interpretation. Post-millennialism, for the most part, bases its interpretation on allegory, spiritualizing, and, and there is a large supersessionist theology there. And what I mean by that is that the church, a supersessionist teaches that a, the church has replaced or superseded Israel. I find that to be greatly problematic. Greatly problematic. Problematic. I think that there's that inconsistent hermeneutic with both the Old and New Testament. The second predominant view with regard to this 1,000 years that we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 20 is known as millennialism, Amillennialism. millennialism, is the idea that the 1,000 years referred to here is merely symbolic. Again, it's like postmillennialism, post-millennialism in that sense that this is just a symbolic reference to a 1,000 years. And that the Old Testament references to the millennial kingdom mean that the millennial kingdom is now being fulfilled in the church. So it's quite, uh, I would call amillennialism the uh, negative side, while postmillennialism would be considered the positive. Or you could say that amillennialism, amillennialism is the reductionist standpoint, where they... They just kind of push these things to the side and then all of a sudden they're left with just this, ah, there's no 1,000 years that we're, that's merely symbolic and uh, that these, those Old Testament references to a millennial kingdom uh, mean now in the church. Here's two problems that I see with millennialism. Don't worry, I'm going to bash on premillennialism too, so don't worry about that. Um, the pro- two problems that I see with with millennialism is one never in scripture nowhere in scripture is the word year used in association with a number so whenever you read in scripture old and new testament you read year the word year followed by a number or preceded by a number nowhere in scripture does that not mean that year that that amount so what i'm saying is that if it says a thousand years nowhere in scripture does it not mean a thousand years if it says 10 years nowhere in scripture does it not mean 10 years It is always translated literally or interpreted literally. So again, we kind of fall back here with the amillennialist point. And I have dear friends and I have men that I love in in the Lord that are amillennialists. But I think, again, this is an inconsistent hermeneutic. The second problem I see with amillennialism is that it is historically supersessionist. It is historically replacement theology. Now, they hate that phrase replacement theology historically it's an augustinian theology in the sense that the church has replaced israel and then this falls back again to your method of interpretation now you're reading into the old testament that the church everywhere israel is mentioned it's referring to the church i think that's problematic and inconsistent and thirdly We have a couple minutes here. Thirdly is the third point of view, and this is the view that I would hold to, that I believe is scriptural and consistent. It just seems to be, I find consistencies and inconsistencies with each one of these, but I think that the most consistent, the most consistent method of eschatological interpretation would be that of premillennialism. Premillennialism teaches that the thousand years mentioned here in Revelation chapter 20 is literal, that it's a thousand years that it means a literal thousand years where Christ will literally reign over the nations upon the throne of David affirmed by many of the church fathers. And I'm talking about first and second century church fathers. This didn't just come up with John Nelson Darby as the straw man would like to, to advocate for. There are many church fathers in the first and second century who would hold to premillennialism. Um, Known also as historic premillennialism, and I believe that it's also the most consistent interpretation with regard to the Old Testament prophecies. I just think that it's the most consistent. Now, as I said, I find I have friends in each one of these categories. I love them dearly. I would stand toe to toe right beside them, preaching the gospel with any of these men, um, but they know that I find their method of interpretation to be in- inconsistent. And since I've mentioned their inconsistencies, I think I would like to mention premillennialism's inconsistencies as well. I've found three major inconsistencies with premillennialism. I wanna give them to you. One is that it's often abused in hyper-dispensationalist circles who often advocate for two ways of salvation. They're often advocating for two ways of salvation uh that somehow also i've actually read that some would interpret the sermon on the mount being reserved for the the millennial kingdom i don't know where you find that at all i don't know how you get chapters five six and seven in the book of matthew how that automatically equates to the thousand year millennial reign of christ nowhere anywhere in the sermon on the mount does that lend itself to such an interpretation Another one of the problems, the second problem I find with premillennialism as we see it today, is that guys like C.I. Schofield, Lewis Perry Schaefer, and the Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, a lot of the Dallas Theological Seminary guys, um, they disassociated themselves from lordship salvation. They, they've they've s- stepped back away from, from the lordship of Christ in salvation. And I think that that's prob- problematic. And it's usually found in those premillennialist Dispensational circles. And the third problem I see here is that it has given birth to numerous Arminian contortions of prophetic scripture. Meaning that they'll abandon all forms of symbolism. They, they, they'll, they'll take a, such a literal approach that when the Bible does use symbolism, they liter- read, read it literally. And then you get stuff like the Apache helicopters in the book of Revelation and crazy stuff like that. I think that's the problem that it lends itself to. Um, if you're not careful, when the Bible uses symbolism, use symbolism. When there's, when there's literal interpretation, interpret it literally. Um, I don't find this to be that difficult. But as you'll find with anything, guys will take things to the extreme and they'll... Uh, try to read themselves or their own ideas into the text, and that becomes a, a big problem. So uh, there's my spiel to a class of 85 and uh, actually more like a class of seven. My, Malachi's looking at me like, man, I got to know what, I, I, you lost me a half hour ago. Um, <laughs> you say, well, why did you go through this? Well, because guys, look, this is a big issue. This is a big uh, topic, and it's important. It's very important. And the more you familiarize yourself with these things, the more that you will be well-equipped to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Ultimately, what's this all about? When we come away from this, we should be humbled. We should be humbled. We We should be longing to grow closer to Christ. And I want to leave you with one final text to kind of just kind of try to pull this all together here. If you would just please look with me at First Thessalonians chapter five. And we'll close with this. First Thessalonians chapter five. What we must remember is with all of this survey of eschatological issues and what it seems like we're really in the weeds here. Um, remember that this is not obscure to God. What we what we think may be hard and challenging and difficult to interpret god has still put it in his word and therefore it is important and it is some guys would like to approach these things and say well you know what we just can't know so let's just throw our hands up in the air and let's just back off away from it and let's just you know it's not that important no it is important it is very important how do we know it's important because god has put it in his word it is important for us. It is important that when we read these things, that we don't just kind of throw our hands up and say, well, I just don't get it. I'm never going to understand it. I'm going to walk away from here and just forget it. No, it's important that we see these things and we seek to dive deeply and always yearn to know Christ more. That's the 16-penny that's the nail of this entire study, is I want us to know Christ more. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. That day of the Lord there that he's referring to, that Paul is referring to, is what we've just read in Revelation 19 and 20. It's that final day, the climactic battle of Armageddon that will end the tribulation period and usher in the millennial kingdom look at verse three while they are saying peace and safety then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman who is pregnant and they will never escape but you brothers here's the application guys out of everything i've just talked about for the last 50 minutes here's the application But you, brothers, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let, here's the application. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, they get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. There's a command. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but for obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, comfort one another And build up one another just as you also are doing. I think Paul loved the Thessalonican church. I think the reason he brings in eschatological issues is because he wanted to comfort these people. Why do we study about future things? Because it comforts us. It gives us assurance and peace and hope. And we look to the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice in these things. It shapes our worldview. It brings us hope and comfort. Any questions or thoughts?